Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 354, Modular Homes, how Chris Krager launched his Austin, Texas-based developer design-build architecture firm, KRDB. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM, specifications, and so much more. And Monograph, the time tracking and project management tool built for architects by architects. Chris Krager, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you for being here. Uh, Based in Austin, Texas, Chris Krager formed Krager and Associates Design Build, a developer design build company in 2001 uh, with the intention of creating financially accessible architecture while focusing on sustainability in the urban environment. KRDB's work has been recognized locally and nationally, including winning the AIA Austin's prestigious Firm Achievement Award in its first year back in 2001. Their work has been published in numerous books, journals, national newspapers. It's been featured on television on shows such as Uh, This New House, Small Space, Big Style, Dream Builders, Dwell TV, and uh, What You Get for Your Money, KRDB's Saul uh, Austin Project, a 40-unit 
model for holistic sustainable design was one of the first net zero capable projects uh, in the United States and has been awarded with several honors and was featured on the front page of the New York Times home section. In 2008, KRDB introduced Ma Modular, uh, their line of affordable modular uh, modern homes and are currently working on projects in Austin, Los Angeles, Dallas, and New York. What began as a single family endeavor has now grown into include uh, projects ranging in a scale from four unit small lot development to a 135 unit, 150,000 square foot project on six acres. So Chris, you and your team have most certainly been busy uh, doing what you do. And so uh, I wanna I want to learn how this all began. So I would love to sort of start off with your origin story. So go back to where you discovered your par- uh, passion for architecture and, uh, and tell us that journey from that point to where you find yourself today. Right, so um, I began in undergraduate school, I was pre-law initially. I had a lawyer convince me not to become a lawyer. I switched degrees um, to general business administration with an emphasis in finance. Um, thought I was gonna get into the financial markets had a, and I had a, a stockbroker about a month before graduating convinced me not to do that. <laughs> uh, I worked in, um, I then uh, graduated from undergraduate school uh, in a recession in 1990 um, and uh, took a job in banking because I didn't know what I was going to do um, with the idea that I had an inkling that I needed a creative outlet. But um, so I worked in uh, banking in Chicago for five years. Um, I was running a mortgage brokerage that did about $60 million a year. Um, uh, in, in, in mortgage loans. Um, and then, uh, I just happened upon, I kind of decided that I needed a creative outlet, but I also wanted to, to be able to leverage what I felt were my analytical strengths. And so I had a friend who was in graduate school in architecture in Chicago at the time, um, at UIC. And, um, I saw what she was doing and I thought, you know, this seems like, uh, this seems ideal. I also had a couple of clients as a banker who were doing like, um, turn, you know, flips where they were buying real estate yeah. and picking them up, but they weren't doing it in a very interesting way. And so um, coming into, uh, I, I happened upon the program at UT Austin, total coincidence uh, through a mutual friend, um, came down to Austin to visit, really liked the program, liked the, um, they had, a, I thought they had a really great uh, kind of balance of theory and practice at the time. Um, uh, had people who were interested in building buildings, but they also had people who were pushing the envelope tech you know, technology like Marcus Novak. And so I decided to come to Austin. Uh, and pretty, pretty entrepreneurial program as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. At UT? Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So the faculty, um, you know, the diversity of the program and then Austin city, um, which actually to me, 26 years ago was a big town, wasn't quite a city yet. Um, so I, I came to UT Austin uh, to go to grad school um, and thought I would leave and go to New York or LA or maybe back to Chicago. Um, but what I realized is that I, it took a slightly unconventional route to practice in that I wasn't interested in doing the typical thing of going and working for a marquee architect, working my way up the food chain. And um, I wanted to, having, um, having run a small business already, um, uh, having um, also, I in undergraduate school, I worked as a a framer in the summertime to put myself through through school. I had worked in banking. I had my real estate license. I had worked in construction, um, and uh, right out of undergraduate or under 
out of graduate school, one of uh, my former partner, Christopher Robertson, he and I um, started chatting uh, and we had a common interest in accessible architecture and uh, figuring out a way to design buildings that um, people could afford. Um, I was immediately enamored of architecture, but I didn't know on anyone growing up that lived in an architect design home. Um, so this idea that we uh, could provide uh, high quality design at an affordable price point um, was what um, uh, motivated the practice. And we also thought, oh, we're a couple of guys just out of graduate school. You know, no one's going to hire us to do this. So we were very fortunate to be in Austin and have um, the city of Austin has uh, had one of the first green builder programs in the country, but they also had a thing called the smart housing program, which was targeted to give incentive incentives to uh, builders and homeowners. Um, there was a first time home buyer component and there was also a, a small builder loan program. So we went out and we bought a couple of lots in East Austin for $15,000. I think I put them on a credit card. Um, and uh, we were able to secure a construction loan uh, through the city's uh, small builder program. And we built these two um, small houses that were, you know, green builder rated, went to first time home buyers. Um, and so this was the start of the practice. Uh, it was vertically integrated from the beginning. We developed, designed, built, sold. Um, and um, it was interesting. We had a, um, uh, a woman from the local newspaper, the Statesman, call and say she wanted to write an article. We were going to have an open house and she wanted to write an article for us. It was actually going to be in the business section. It wasn't a, in the design or, you know, home, home section. And um, so she interviewed us about what we did. Uh, we mentioned that there was going to be an open house and that Sunday we had this open house and, you know, I brought the Sunday paper because I figured that, you know, few people would come. Well, we ended up having 750 people come, news crews, like it was, <laughs> it was a crazy response, you know, which um, really uh, for us just kind of affirmed this assumption that we had that people were interested in affordable, accessible design. Is that, uh, is that how you launched the firm with those two houses? With those two houses. That was the first well, thing you did? Well, and then what happened was um, the, um, uh, we, the one of uh, Ingrid Spencer, I'm, I'm sorry, not Ingrid Spencer. Um, oh, one of the editors, early editors of Dwell, who was from Texas originally. Um, I'm blanking, sorry. Allison, Allison um, uh, was uh, from Texas and she, someone sent her this uh, article in the Statesman and um, Dwell called us and said, uh, and this was early days of Dwell. I think they were around for a year. And they said, we wanted to feature, we wanted to look at your, your project. And so they came and they shot it. And then they said, oh, it's going to be on the cover. Um, <laughs> so our first project ended up being on the cover of Dwell Magazine. Um, we won um, an AIA award for the project. And we also uh, were awarded the Firm Achievement Award, our first year in existence, <laughs> which some people took umbrage with. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, let me, let me jump in because I, 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 I don't want to get past this too fast because, because it sounds like if from the outside, it sounds like, okay, two guys came together, let's build a couple of houses. And then all of a sudden all this luck poured down on, on top of you, right? That's what it looks like. But right. you also gave me your origin story. You started in law school, you worked your way through business school, you focused on finance, you went out and worked in finance, you got your real estate license, you had, you had this finance background. 
worked in mortgages, understood that that part of it, um, and then went to architecture school. So you took all of that knowledge, right. brought it to architecture school, came out of architecture school with a completely different background, completely different perspective on the profession than anybody else that comes out of architecture school. Right. And so it's not surprising to hear that your first project was an investment development that then became successful, right? Because of all this background that you had, all this knowledge was all leading up to this moment. And you may have not even recognized it at that moment, but looking back at it, it sort of makes all sense on how that all happened, right? Right, and, and to me, I honestly, uh, the way I look at it is I can't imagine it happening another way. I mean, for me, it just felt a kind of a natural uh, course of events. And I think one of the things that attracted me to architecture um, was the uh, ability to kind of build a, uh, a practice and a career of your own, of your own kind of interests and, and um, the same thing, the same uh, skills and qualities that make a good architect um, are also the things that attract me to building a small business and being a developer and like being able to identify the opportunities and put the pieces together, um, uh, take all these kind of individual elements and see a kind of a pattern or whatnot and to pull them together in a project. And so that's kind of a strand that runs through our practice, whether it's on the development side, it's on the construction and construction technology side. Um, I think probably if it had been more popular when I was young, I would have been diagnosed with ADD. I think, uh, and I think my practice suits me in that way. And that I, it's, there's a lot of juggling going on and mm -hmm. I think I perform uh, most efficiently when I have all of these elements that I'm having to uh, kind of um, balance at, at one at one time. So um, yeah, it was um, it felt a little inevitable to me. It was interesting too because we had people with the success of the first project. I remember getting interviewed and people asked me, "Well, are you worried about um, competition that people are going to see what you do and imitate yeah. what you do?" And I, it was just such a strange question to me. And I said, well, no, quite on the contrary. Like the reason what will be success to me is that people do that. Is right. that see that and say, oh, well, look, there's, you know, here's this opportunity. And so, um, and I think in retrospect, almost 20 years later, you know, now, you know, what we do now is not like a really novel. There's a lot of people who, who do design build. Um, but, uh, and the type of work that we do and something that's a little more affordable and accessible, you see it, especially with the growth kind of return to the central city. There's a lot more of this type of work happening. But when we were first doing this 20 years ago, especially in a town like Boston, it was, it was something that was new. So, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, the pure definition of an entrepreneur architect, you mm -hmm. know, that you've, you've taken all these skills and have started started from scratch as an architect builder developer right all these things that so many architects wish they could be right they they, they want to do that they all are excited about you know wanting to design and build their own homes and and develop developments and but very few take the the steps to do it we will return to our conversation after this quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors here at entree architect our cat and monograph. RCAT.com has been assisting architecture professionals in their search for the best products for their projects for nearly 30 years. Starting as a printed desktop reference with listings in manufacturers catalogs, RCAT has evolved into the number one most used website for finding building product information. 
Today, RCAT is an invaluable tool for AEC professionals, offering a powerful product search engine that's backed up by up-to-date CAD, BIM, and specifications. And just as it was in 1991, today, RCAT offers all of this at no cost to their users and without requiring any registration. It's free. Visit entrearchitect.com slash RCAT today and see why architecture professionals have leveraged the power of RCAT for three decades. entrearchitect.com slash RCAT. That's entrearchitect.com slash A-R-C-A-T. Spreadsheets. Spreadsheets. Are you tired of using spreadsheets to keep track of your project plans, your budgets, your staff, your time? Our friends at Monograph know what that's like because they're architects too. They know all about that spreadsheet mess that you're dealing with. So they did something about it. Monograph is a time tracking and project management tool built for architects by architects to respond to the challenges that small and medium-sized firms face on their quest to a profitable business. With Monograph's integrated suite of tools, you'll stay on track and on budget without the overhead of wrangling spreadsheets every day. Improve your firm's operations today. Try Monograph. Try it for free at entrearchitect.com slash monograph. Ditch the spreadsheets. Visit entrearchitect.com slash monograph and try Monograph right now for free. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. If, if, there, if you had some advice for people who uh, would like to do that, right? Either somebody starting an architecture firm and wants to uh, follow a similar model that you did or somebody that's more established that's always wanted to do something similar to you where it's design, build, development, um, affordable, sustainable buildings, what would you suggest they start with? Where do they sort of get the, the first step? Well, I think the first thing they have to do is measure, take a, a kind of a, a reading of what their risk aversion is. Um, and it, because it's just not for everyone. Yeah. Um, and um, building buildings is, um, is, is complicated um, and, and difficult and messy and, and frustrating. Um, and when you start to layer these other things on top of it, taking the financial risk, um, you know, adding the, the, the kind of component of looking for the opportunities on the development side, um, dealing with the financial institutions, having that savvy. Um, those are things that um, add kind of layers of complexity and potential uh, agita to your life. And so I think understanding that you're suited for that kind of thing is probably the most important. And if you, if you are, and if you realize that you are, um, I think that there's great opportunity there because there aren't a lot of, I don't think there are truly a lot of people who, who, um, you know, can do that and, and maintain their sanity. And so, um, you know, once you recognize that you do, you don't have that risk aversion, I think there's a lot of opportunities out there. And, and what we've found is that, um, you know, we, we've never marketed our firm. Uh, and part of that is because people have seen, what we've done and they've come to us. And, and one of the things I would say is look for opportunities to joint venture. Um, we've done many, almost most of our projects have been joint ventures with um, uh, partnerships. And those vary in terms of like, sometimes it's, you know, somebody is just bringing, it might be 
cash or land to the table, and then we're doing everything else. Um, I've all, I also have much more involved partners. The, all the projects I'm doing in Los Angeles are with one um, development outfit there uh, called Leap of Faith Ventures, um, and they're very actively involved, and we co-develop, and they're very involved with the design, um, and they have a concrete company, so they're involved in the construction. So, um, you know, looking for uh, opportunities, um, I mean, what, what I've done is I've tried to um, kind of leverage other people's assets <laughs> um, that we uh, try to maximize. Because a lot of people say, well, I don't have the money to do this. Well, you don't necessarily right. have to have um, truckloads of cash to do this. You, can, you need to get creative about that and you can find these opportunities. And it could be as simple as finding somebody in your neighborhood who has a lot, an empty lot, who's been sitting on it for a long time and they have equity in it. And, and I've done this. I've one of my first mixed use projects. Um, I knew I was introduced to the gentleman who owned uh, the small tract of land and he agreed to put it under land contract with me. Um, so, you know, uh, it's uh, one, once you recognize your lack of risk aversion, going out there and finding these kind of opportunities, um, I think is, you know, is a, is a great way. And they can, they're small, you know, do a small spec house, something like that. Um, look for opportunities to kind of leverage that through, through ventures. Yeah. Very and good advice. And then you grow these things. I mean, over time, we've, you know, we've gone from doing a one house or two houses to four to eight. To our sole development was a, a 40 units on 38 lots on five acres. That was a, a, a we actually partnered with a not-for-profit on that project to provide 40% of this affordable housing. Um, so, you know, we, we just kind of, that just grew um, exponentially over time, the scale of the projects we've taken on. Has everything you've done been affordable and sustainable? Was that the, the primary focus? No, I mean, the, the, the level of sustainability, I mean, I would say that we're, um, you know, we don't, um, on our sole project, all of the houses were rated through the Austin Green Builder Program. They were either four or five stars. Um, some of the projects we do uh, by virtue of the partnerships we're in, where that, um, where, uh, sustainability to a degree, uh, let's say, of, of having a kind of certification is not a mandate for the partners. Um, it may not necessarily, you know, go through LEED or Green Builder or something like that. Yeah. What we've learned over time is that we have um, uh, a certain kind of um, a baseline kind of construction specification that we're going to build to that we know is going to hit a benchmark. Uh, if it goes through a, a, a rating or how the building is going to perform. And we've done a lot of post-occupancy monitoring where we can see, you know, hey, if we build with X, Y, and Z, you know, we'll be able to hit a certain uh, kind of level of performance on a building. So even if we're not going for a rating, a, a, a you know, sustainability rating on a project, we know we're hitting a, a baseline level of sustainability with the performance of the building. Um, and then in terms of the affordability, it's a similar thing. Um, when we, when we can, uh, we integrate, uh, we integrate affordability. Um, I mean, I would say in general, the work that we do, even if they're just say spec houses, um, when, uh, compared in the market to what most of my colleagues build for on a per square foot basis, our projects are much more approachable and affordable. Um, so, you know, they're not necessarily hitting 60 or 80% median family income, but we're putting, you know, we've put houses on the ground that are selling in the market that are 
comparable on a per square foot cost to um, a more conventional house. So, um, but we've hit the kind of affordability benchmark again across the spectrum and based on uh, from a project to project basis, how, how um, you know, deeply targeted that's gonna go. Um, you know, we usually have to uh, apply for subsidies if we're gonna try to hit a you know, 60% MFI or something like that. And so um, it varies from project to project. Is, do you find that there's a, a higher demand for your architecturally designed homes uh, compared to a big big box developer? Oh yeah, I mean, I think that, um, like I said, when we started building this type of, you know, people weren't building modern spec houses in Austin 18 years ago. Um, uh, now, I mean, Austin's had a boom. I mean, we're now, we're about to be the 10th largest city in the country. I think we're gonna pass San Jose shortly. Um, and a lot of that development has been central. Um, and so I've watched over the 18 years uh, that the, the uh, building stock in the market changed pretty dramatically, um, going from kind of very conventional construction, um, both in type and design, uh, you know, aesthetic, uh, to, you know, I won't say a majority, but when you look at what's, you know, uh, houses that are built on spec, in central Austin, uh, you know, quite a few of them have um, uh, are have an architect involved, have a um, kind of modern design um, elements to them. Um, so I, I think we've seen that um, interest and that demand for design manifest in what's provided in the market. And we've watched, you know, I've watched, uh, for example, the AIA Homes tour, tour here in Austin, you know, grow from being relatively small tour to now, I think they have 5,000 people a year, you know, and we've had, you know, several, several years we've had homes on the tour and um, it's remarkable to see uh, the, the level of interest in design in the, in the general public and how that's grown over the, over, you know, 20 years or so. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I you know, if, if a home buyer who doesn't really have options, right, their, their options are the big builders. Mm -hmm. um, suddenly are presented with an option for a house that's similar in cost, probably more sustainable, um, and is a architecturally designed home that many of them probably would prefer the architecturally designed home. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think an anecdote um, that's uh, rel relevant to that is that we were, when we were doing, we were getting a <clears throat> zoning change for our sole development. We were going from a SF3, which is a standard single family, to SF4A, which is small lot. Um, we needed to, um, well, we didn't have to, but having, there's a neighborhood uh, uh, organization in, in where the property was. And so uh, having the support of the neighborhood group when you go to the planning commission, zoning and planning is tremendously helpful. And so we went and um, where we were building this project um, was is historically a Latino neighborhood. And there's a, a group called Poder, which is an environmental activist group. And they're very active in the neighborhood. and um, we went into the meeting um, to, to pitch the project. Uh, of course, we had with us our not-for-profit partner who is provide, we were providing 40% of the housing um, at uh, affordable levels, both rental and uh, purchase, and that ranged from 30 to 80% median family income. And so we pitched the project, and they loved the idea of the affordability and the sustainability, and then uh, they started asking us about the aesthetics of the project. and. Um, and I, I, you know, anticipated there being a little pushback on this. So I said, listen, we showed you the work. Um, what I'd really like to do 
is if anyone's interested, I'll take you on a tour of some houses. And so we had, um, I think a dozen folks from this meeting uh, asked to come along and we took them, I think to three different projects. Um, and at the end of this, I had, I think three or four of them asking us when our project was going to be done. They were very interested. <laughs> they, want to, they want first on the list. I, I think when people, and I've even seen this within my own family. I mean, my, my sisters and my parents, you know, they didn't have familiarity with architecture, modern design. And when yeah. I started doing this and they started seeing and walking through and, and experiencing the spaces, um, what I found, gosh, almost without exception is that people just respond really positively to it. Yeah. And, and often what it is, they just don't even recognize what they've been missing in these, you know, buildings that they've been dwelling in, which is, again, just speaks to the whole purpose uh, and raison d'etre of the practice to kind of bring this um, uh, to a, a larger cross-section of the population. So, yeah, I mean, I think people uh, people definitely respond to it when they have the opportunity to experience it. And, um, yeah, it's been, it's been really rewarding to, to see that happen. Yeah, yeah, and, and you're probably in, inspiring some of the big developers to, because I'm in North Carolina in, in Charlotte, and, uh, you know, lots and lots of development happening and you see a few architecturally designed homes happening and, um, and then you start seeing some of the big builders start mm -hmm. using modern elements. They don't design it like an architect would design it, but they like pick and choose and they're like, Oh, but they put this little modern detail on this you yeah. know, house and make it a modern traditional house. Um, right. but, but they're doing, if you see them doing that, it's because there's a demand for modern architecture. Well, um, yeah, and what they've seen is they, they've seen that like uh, almost without fail, when we've done spec projects, our, our houses will sell at the top of the, of the comp mark in, the, in that area. So we'll have the higher per square foot values. And then on resales, you know, um, you know, I can't tell you how many projects I've seen resell two times, three times and thought, oh, I wish I would have held on to that. Um, and, and on some level, we're, uh, I, I, have, I have mixed feelings about that um, um, because we're on some level, we're, it's, I guess, a bit of a victim of our own success that people be like, oh, well, your houses are more expensive than other houses in the neighborhood. But I say it's because it's a qualitative thing. Right. And, you know, and then hopefully once, you know, there's more of this in a market that will naturally, you know, we won't just flow to the top if that, you know, we'll be in the middle because, or wherever, because uh, hopefully eventually there's a, a larger volume of higher quality design out there in the, in the market. I might, I might be a little Pollyannish, but. <laughs> yeah, but I, that's what we all hope, right? I mean, if we can, if we can have an influence in the way that development is being done and it's a positive influence, then even if, even if it's minor, it's better than us not being involved. Right. So the people who are directly involved certainly benefit from being part of what we do. Um, but if what we're doing is successful, the developers will see that success and they will start being influenced by that as well. Absolutely. And, and we've had, you know, um, we've been approached many times, um, even right, right out of the gate um, uh, from by developers who've seen what we've done and seen it published and we're interested in it. And um, so, and, you know, most of those haven't uh, manifest, but we, we've done quite a few projects over the years. Um, uh, you know, our, our level of service varying uh, 
again, from project to project, but uh, with folks who have seen what we're doing and are interested in, in integrating that in, in other markets. So, Yeah, very interesting. Before we wrap up, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about the, your firm structure. How many people in the firm? How is it structured? Like, what is your role in, this, in the firm? Just so people can sort of have an idea of who's doing the work that you're, you're providing. So we're a 10 person firm. Um, and, uh, you know, the structure in the firm is, is I guess somewhat typical, you know, we have, I have project managers under me, um, they have project assistants, you know, drafting people. Um, but then we also have, because we're a design build firm, um, I have superintendents who, uh, are out in the field full time overseeing, you know, we typically will have, Oh, I don't know, six half dozen or so projects going a variety of scales at any given time um the thing though and when we when we interview folks um the thing that we you know even though we're a small firm um the thing that we kind of warn people about is that because we're a vertically integrated firm when they come in it's going to be a very different experience than say going to work for a big a big firm where you typically will you know, you'll be put on a team, you know, especially early on, your your path is pretty prescribed. People in our office end up um, getting involved in uh, all aspects of the project, um, you know, getting a, a glimpse of what the development side looks like, working on, you know, uh, proposals, whether they be design kind of schematic proposals, financial modeling, um, uh, and then obviously through design process and then uh we're doing all of the you know we're a general contractor and so we're overseeing the construction and so um on a daily basis um they could be working on uh one of any of those uh elements of 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 a project so you know i mean to me i like that i like that on a day-to-day basis that i you know i'm doing but that's not everyone's um cup of tea so it's something that we uh, forewarn people, and hopefully they'll. That's something that excites them when they come in. Uh, you know, that kind of uh, variety of, of experience. So yeah, and it's certainly I, I think people who have experience in construction become better architects because they understand how the buildings go together, and and also how the trades work and think about architects and how you can relate with architects and builders and the relationships right. among them improve, and so the building is, is actually improved by the the teamwork that that's resulting from that absolutely and i mean i firmly believe that i mean as broad as the architectural um, um, education is it could be well served to integrate i mean i honestly think that some experience in construction should almost be mandatory Mm -hmm. uh, within the architectural curriculum Um, i asked about i was very inspired by the rural studio which was kind of just getting started when i was in grad school and i asked oh do we have a design build program here and and the answer I got back then, which has changed in the interim, was, oh, you'll learn that stuff when you get out there. And as, yeah. as, as, a, as a principal of a practice who's hired dozens of people over the years, I've seen the result of, of that lack of exposure. And it really, whether that be the construction side, whether that be understanding what goes into entitlements, uh, whether that be yeah. the kind of economic, the financial side of it, those are things that, um, you know, I would encourage uh, young architects or architects who are still in grad school or undergraduate school to try to get, you know, there's not a whole lot of latitude in your, edu- it's a very concentrated curriculum, but if you can take some of those courses and, you know, real estate or finance, et cetera, 
Um, I think that getting that exposure, or like I did, worked in construction in the summers, um, those things uh, are highly beneficial to uh, an architect's practice. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, do you design everything that's being come that comes out of your firm, or do you have designers working with you? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm on the team. I I'm involved yeah. in every project, um, and I'm project manager. So I I'm very involved early on in the kind of pre-design and schematic design phase, um, and then I get very involved in the kind of when things go into construction, uh, the middle portion, I kind of leave to my project managers and project architects. But yeah, I, I mean, it's been something, you know, struggling with like how to grow because we've certainly had opportunities yeah. um, to get bigger. And it's something that at some point where I, you can't wrap your arms around it anymore. Uh, I almost feel like, well, what what's the point? I mean, I don't have a business partner, so I, I want to make sure that I'm always able to kind of uh, understand and see what's going on with the projects and stay involved with them. So, yeah. And then just, just, uh, just another technical question. Are the companies, are the, the build side and the design side, two separate companies? They're not. It's one, it's, it's one, it's all one company. Yeah. You know, and, and that's on some level, it's just a practical issue. Um, the, um, uh, and I think this was something that I probably vetted with my CPA and my attorney years ago. And then on the insurance side, you know, they, it's hard to get insurance as a design build firm. I mean, you're, yeah, that's, that's you're, the biggest question. Mm-hmm, yeah. Your E and O there's only, there's a handful of firms, uh, that will give you, you know, um, uh, that's the harder part. I mean, I can get the, the general liability is not a problem, but the E and O stuff is trickier. Um, and so, um, I, you know, I don't remember the exact, uh, kind of conversation, but I remember vetting this with my attorney and my CPA and it just made you know, sense for the, um, the, uh, the, it to be one, one LLC. Um, now we do, we do create separate contracts. I have a design contract mm-hmm. and, uh, we have a, you know, contract for, um, on the, on the construction side. Um, so you're being hired twice yeah. so you're being hired to design it and then you're being hired to build it. Right. And, and, you know, usually going into the design contract, the client's assumption and our assumption is that we will be building it. But the conversation we have is that yeah. it, for whatever reason, there may be, you may decide, you know, your brother-in-law may want to build it or whatnot. Um, it just, it says, I have been doing this from day one. Um, we just separate those two. So. Yeah. Yeah. What's one thing a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? I would say, um, don't be afraid to go out there and kind of make your own opportunities. Like um, I was mentioning earlier, like look for the opportunities to uh, create joint ventures. It's a way to um, leverage your way into a project of a type and scale that you might not be able to uh, handle on your own, um, but it affords you opportunities uh, that may either take longer or you may never have. Um, and there are so many people out there who um, uh, need the skill set of, of a good architect and a good designer uh, to make a project that is, you know, whatever, however, you know, better to what degree, I don't know, but um, that, that uh, will recognize those, um, the, the benefit of having that on board. Uh, don't be afraid to, to, to come go after those. and, and um, create those opportunities for yourself. Very inspiring. Uh, Chris Kreger is his name, krdb.com. If you'd like to go check out his website, see all the work that he's doing. 
the modular work that he's doing. I, we didn't really talk much about modular, but but you're doing a lot of work in modular uh, with a, mod, a new modular company called Ma Modular. You can look and find more information on that at mamodular.com. We'll have links to both websites on the show notes. Uh, maybe you can come back and we can talk more about modular. Um, Chris, thank you. This has been very inspiring. I think there are many, many architects who look at your work and say, well, I, I wish I could do that. And you just gave them uh, permission to go do it. And so uh, I appreciate you for doing that, for joining us here and for sharing your knowledge at Entree Architect Podcast. Well, thanks for having me. You are listening to episode 354. If you'd like to access the show notes or share this episode with a friend, the link is entrearchitect.com slash episode 354. 354 is the episode number, entrearchitect.com slash episode 354 is the link to share. Please do that. That helps us grow the podcast every week because you are sharing that link, entrearchitect.com slash episode 354. Entree Architect is proud to be a part of the largest, most engaged AEC multimedia network on the planet, Gable Media. If you haven't been there, GableMedia.com. It's G-A-B-L Media.com. We are curating thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. We're working to bring the best of AEC content to one place so you can find it really very easily podcast and video channels. You can listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And this week at Entree Architect, at the community, throughout the, throughout the community, on the platform, Entree Architect, we introduced a new free three-module training program for the Entree Architect community. And you're invited to access Build Your Brand Basics right now at entrearchitect.com slash brandbasics. Our friend, Entree uh, Architect, Director of Brand Strategy, host of Context and Clarity Live inside the Facebook group. And he's the host of the Build Your Brand podcast. Jeff Eccles and I have been working hard this past month to develop a new on-demand course, a comprehensive course to help architects find the work that they want and the uh, earn the fees that they deserve the Build Your Brand course. It's a comprehensive course. It helps you put together a branding system for your architecture firm, and it's available right now. So to introduce that new comprehensive on-demand training program, we developed a separate free version. It's a free version that's available right now at entrearchitect.com slash brand basics. It's a three module video training series where Jeff shares the basics of brand building for your architecture firm. Follow the steps that Jeff presents in these videos and you will be on your way to attracting the clients you want most. That's the way it works. Build a brand and you will attract the clients that you really want to be working with. There's no catch for this, this training course. It's completely free. Um, there's no cost. You don't even need to register with your email address. It's there waiting for you right now. Uh, and you are invited to access Build Your Brand Basics at entrearchitect.com slash brand basics. Jeff and I hope you find it super useful. So go grab it. EntreeArchitect.com slash brand basics. My friends, be well, be happy, healthy, safe, and secure. Have a fantastic holiday. We'll see you on the other side. Thank you for listening. Love, learn, and share what you know.
I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There's a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.